jump into the, the helmet of salvation this morning, and I mentioned this earlier, as in all the other pieces of the armor, he didn't give us a helmet, he gave us salvation. And I love how the Bible says in Hebrews, it's not just salvation, it is a great salvation, amen? And so it's a great salvation that we're walking in, but sometimes our salvation doesn't seem so great, and we let down our faith in certain areas. So we want to pick up our faith in this great salvation that we have. And the Bible talks about um, the, the helmet of salvation, and the Greek word's going to be thrown up there, and I'm not even going to uh, humiliate myself by, by trying to say what it actually is. The helmet is actually a Greek word, which the first word is peri, which means around, and then kapahalia, which is head. It's a piece of the armor that fits tightly around one head. Now listen to this description of the, the, the helmet that the, that the author was talking about. And it says, the helmet is the most fascinating, notable, beautiful piece of the armor, and it was intricately designed and decorated. Unlike the shield, where, where there was one for show and one to go, the helmet was beautiful, and it was used in battle all the same. It had intricate designs and engravings on them, which represented who they are. It was more like a piece of art than a piece of armor. It also had a huge plume of bright colors on them. This would make them stand out in battle, and they could be seen coming from a great distance away. The helmet was bronze and was equipped with pieces that cover the jaw and the cheek of the shoulder. And the helmet was very, um, the helmet was very heavy, but its weight is where its strength came from. So strong that the battle axe could not penetrate it. So the helmet, as the shield of faith is used for the long distance arrows of the enemy, the helmet is used for close up hand to hand combat, especially to protect them from the, the one uh, piece of equipment that was mightily used at that time was the battle axe, where literally it could take off a person's head in, in one swing. So let's, let's talk about this helmet just for a minute. The, it says it was the, the most fascinating, notable, and beautiful piece of armor. And now everybody's got in their head already right now of of the helmet. I already know it because this is how I keep correcting myself time and time again. Right now everybody's thinking of all oh, this amazing helmet. It's not oh an amazing helmet, it's an amazing salvation. Right? It's not an amazing helmet. It's an amazing salvation. And it talks about this. The description of it is the most fascinating, notable, and beautiful piece of your armor. Your salvation should be the most fascinating, notable, and beautiful piece about you. Amen? Your salvation should be so prevalent and so beautiful about you that, that you uh, love to wear it, that you love to show it. The soldier went nowhere without his helmet. It wasn't like the shield of faith that had one for show and one to go do battle with. The helmet was the helmet it was beautifully ordained beautifully made beautifully crafted for each specific person and they would wear it wherever they went and they were proud of these helmets your salvation should be the same way your salvation should be the exact same thing it should be the most notable thing about you galatians 2 20 says i have been crucified with christ and it is i no longer live that it's christ that lives in me the life i live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave his life for me your, your salvation should be the most notable thing about you as a believer. It shouldn't be, oh, look at the preacher when he gets all red-faced when he preaches. <laughs> right? That shouldn't be the most notable thing about me. The most notable thing about me shouldn't be my workout program. The most notable thing about me shouldn't be where I go to eat every single day of the week. The most notable thing about me shouldn't be my job. The most notable thing about me as a believer should be my salvation. That's what people should see first. That's what they should see foremost in my life. And the Bible says, or, or the, the description of it says, it was intricate and had amazing designs and engravings on it. Now listen, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 20, you were bought with a price. Everybody say you. you. Okay, everybody say me. me. We were all bought with a price. You should not be wanting somebody else's salvation testimony. You know, and I'm just going to come down on the floor for this, for this one right here. 
Um, you should not be wanting somebody else's salvation testimony. If you always desire, oh God, if I just had a testimony like brother so-and-so, then maybe I could win people to Christ. You don't really know what you've been saved out of. I hear people all the time, oh, if I just had a more dynamic testimony, if I just had more of a dynamic salvation experience, if you got born again, it should have been dynamic. It should have been powerful. It should have been revolutionary in your life. It should have changed you from the old you to the new you. And never again should a church member say, oh, I wish my testimony of salvation was more powerful. Because if you say that, you don't really know that you, what you've been saved out of. And listen, you may have a testimony like mine where I was born again through the saving grace of God where um, his grace kept me from doing a lot of junk stuff in my life. I tried to do bad stuff and the Holy Spirit just wouldn't let me because I've had mamas and grandmamas praying for me so much. I mean, I couldn't do it all. I mean, I've had people praying for me and an amazing thing about my testimony is the month I got saved is the month Sherry's mama started praying for her to have a husband. I didn't have a choice but to be right. <laughs> And my mama gets up early for me and still prays for me. Thank you, Jesus. My grandmother still prays for me. And so, ladies, if you want to get a legacy for your kids, start praying. Your salvation testimony should be so unique and so powerful to you that you should never wish it was like somebody else's. I don't covet anybody else's salvation because I know my great salvation came from my great Savior who died specifically for me. I was bought with a price. And this morning, you were bought with a price. And so your salvation should be unique. It should be engraved on your heart. It should be so powerful in your life that you don't even want to leave your helmet anywhere. You don't want to leave your salvation anywhere because it's the most notable thing about you and it's specifically designed with engravings just for you. The engravings they put on the, these helmets described their life history, who they were, where their history came from. And so the helmets were amazing. The plume that was on top of it, and we've all seen the pictures of the Roman soldiers riding in the battle with the big helmets and the, the plumes on top, it made them stand out and they could be seen coming from a distance. And now some of you are thinking, that's crazy. If I'm going to battle, I don't want anybody to see me. I want to be stealthy. Listen, God didn't call stealthy Christians. He called Christians to stand out. He said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. So why are we going around trying to please the whole world all the time? I'm not saying be rude and kick people in their faces, but what I'm saying is you need to stand where the Word of God says stand and walk forward where the Word of God says walk forward in. Amen? See, so the, the helmet of this soldier that he would wear, like when they would be coming from great distances, they could look and they could see the cavalry coming in with the red, bright red plumes on their helmets riding into battle. There was no hiding these soldiers. These soldiers were not afraid of war. <laughs> And so many times I see Christians thinking, well, I'm going to look like the world, I'm going to dress like the world, I'm going to act like the world, and I'll win him to Jesus on our first date. <laughs> or I'm going to go to the clubs, or I'm going to go to the bars, or I'm going to do what the world does, and then if Jesus comes up, I'll talk about it. That's not how this is described. If you walk in a club or a bar, you should stand out like a dadgum sore thumb, <laughs> because your most notable thing about you is your salvation. I mean, you should stand out like that. There should be just a different presence about you. And so in this, we, God wants us to stand out. The Bible talks about, um, right here in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for the salvation of all mankind and for everyone who believes. God needs us to stand out because the gospel, what we wear, this great salvation, is the power of God for the salvation of the world we live in. And listen, there are literally unreached people groups in the United States of America. What I mean by unreached is people in America who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you are like, that, that's crazy. You're right, that's absolutely crazy. 
But it's true. I got a picture of it on my phone of unreached people groups right here in America. There are over 2.7 billion people in the world who don't know Christ, who have never heard the gospel. But guess what? There's 2.5 billion Christians in the world right now at this point. Amen. So if one Christian would one reach one unreached person, by tomorrow, guess what? Jesus could come back. Because he's not coming back till he said, until everybody's heard the gospel. So get ready to stand out. God, take our church to faith places. Let us walk on the waters wherever you would call us. Let's go. The helmet was very heavy in weight. Now, this sounds kind of weird. It's like, why would you want your head being all heavy in weight? The weight is where its strength came from. The weight is where the strength of the helmet came from. It was made, it was made of bronze, a very heavy metal. And the weight is where its strength came from. And in this, the weight of our salvation ought to be the biggest weight in our life. It should carry heavy weight on our lives, on our decision-making, on our processes of how we do things, on how we operate in this world. The weight that our salvation should carry in every part of our life should be heavy. Does that make sense? Does that illustration make sense? See, I pray that my words today aren't light on you. I pray that they're heavy on you. I pray they weigh heavy on your heart. I pray that my salvation in my life weighs very heavy on my life. Not as a burden thing because Jesus said my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But it should be so important in my life that the weight of my salvation dictates every decision that I make. It dictates every uh, financial decision I make. It dictates every marriage decision that I make. It dictates every aspect of my life. Spiritually, mentally, emotionally, socially, and financially. The five main areas of your life. Your salvation should carry so much weight so much power in your life that it affects every single area of your life. And so that's the description of salvation, the helmet of salvation. Now let's get into actual what it means. What are we going to use it for? How does this really work in our life? Because all that's great, all that's wonderful, now that we know how the helmet's supposed to be in our life. But let's put the helmet to use because the helmet wasn't just for decoration. It was beautifully adorned, but it was ready for battle. The helmet was ready for battle at all times. And so we in our life must be ready for battle at all times. And the, the term um, salvation literally means this, to be brought into a safe place. To be brought into a safe place. So God said, I'm putting safe place right here on your head. It's going to cover that jacked up mind of yours. <laughs> Is what he's saying. I'm bringing your mind into a safe place. This makes me wonder how many people in their common logical thinking take off their helmet and think logically and expose their mind to an unsafe place. You expose your mind to an unsafe place by what you watch on television. Your salvation should dictate what you watch on TV. All the parents said amen. Okay, that wasn't good. <laughs> Y'all are like, oh, that's, ooh, that's hitting home. <laughs> I hope a lot of stuff hits home today. How many of us do we, oh, I know the Bible says this, but I need to make a logical decision of my finances. God never called you to operate in logic. He called you to operate in wisdom. With wisdom, that's led by the Spirit of God. And I promise, wisdom will get you a lot farther than logic ever thought about. Because what you think is logical literally means I'm thinking the way the world does things. And listen, the way the world does things is not the way God does things. The way God's economics are not the way of heavenomics. The way God does things is not the way that Joel, or the, the way the world does things is not the way that Joel should do things. And so in this process, salvation literally means to be brought into a safe place in our thinking. By placing salvation on the head, the mind is brought into a safe place. And listen to this. Every battle, every battle that a believer has won or lost has been won or lost in the mind. 
It has not been won or lost in the spirit. The spirit has already won the battle. The battle has already been won in the spirit. You've been bought with a price. You're no longer your own. Victory is yours. You've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. Ephesians talks about it. And as you're seated with Christ in heavenly places, the victory is already yours spiritually. But every battle on this earth has been won or lost in the battle of the mind. And so God said, put this salvation over your mind. That way where you're seated with Christ spiritually in heavenly places, you're now walking in victory in earthly places in the area of your mind. Every battle is won or lost in the realm of the mind and in the way we think. Let's look at the Garden of Eden for just a minute. The Garden of Eden, the battle was lost in the area of the mind. The spirit, it didn't lose the battle in the area of the spirit. The spirit was in, in, in place with God. The, the world was perfect. There hadn't been sin committed yet. How did Satan deceive Eve and he didn't deceive Adam? Adam consciously sinned. So men, y'all quit blaming women for taking that apple, right? Because Eve was deceived. Adam wasn't. Adam knowingly sinned. And so in this process, let's look at the Garden of Eden just for a minute. Because Eve was deceived in the area of the mind and Adam made a conscious decision. So as Eve's mind was deceived, Adam made a conscious decision to sin. The battle was lost in the area of the mind, and therefore the fall of all creation happened. This is why the Bible says in Romans, be transformed, made different, by the renewing of your, not spirit, mind. This great salvation he's given us is to protect our mind. Yes, it's to get us to heaven one day, but it's to protect our mind, bring us to a safe place. That safe place is in the presence of God where you can hear his voice and get his direction for your life. So the purpose of the helmet of this is, is to literally bring us to a safe place. Let's talk about mind games just for a minute. Let's talk about mind games just for a minute. Because the Bible says in Ephesians 6.11 that you may be able to withstand against the schemes, everybody say schemes, of the devil. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, For we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. Devices in the Greek means scheming of the mind. Deception in the Greek means to deceive with a purpose. If y'all have ever wrote anything down, you need to write down those three slides, okay? I'm going to read them again, and they'll flip back through them because they're awesome up in the sound booth. Ephesians 6.11 says that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, for we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. Devices in the Greek means scheming of the mind. Deception in the Greek means to deceive with a purpose. It means to deceive with a purpose. So Satan's greatest deception is this. Listen, if you ever wanted to know how Satan deceives you, this is how. Satan's greatest deception is this. It's to get you to question the love of God. It all stems from that. It's to get you to question the love of God. Because the Bible says God is love. And if he gets you to question the love of God, he's getting you to question God. So his very attribute, the way he works, his mode of operation, is to get you to question the love of God for your life. And as he gets you to question the love of God for your life, this is what happens. Do, do you understand what happened in the Garden of Eden? The serpent came up, stealthily as can be. Eve's standing there by this tree. And he says, did God really say not to eat of the fruit of this tree? Did God really say? Do, do you understand what he's doing? He's making her question the love of God for your life. Did God really say you need to tithe? See, he's getting you to question the love of God. And he's getting you to take off salvation and put on logic. He got Eve to take off salvation and put on logic. Did God really say that if you eat of the fruit, you will die? In fact, you will not die. You will be made like God, knowing good and evil. See, he used all the right terms 
He just used the different definitions because he was talking physical death and God was talking spiritual death because death, the definition of death is this, it's separation from God. That's death. I mean, physical body stuff here. We're here one day, we're gone the next. I mean, it's that simple. Death is separation from God. Life is plugged into God and the power of God. This is why when you receive Christ, you have everlasting life. So the Satan's biggest deception is to get you, and his only deception is to get you to question the love of God. If God really loved you, why did he let your grandmother die? If God really loved you, why is he allowing to go you to go through such a tough test in your life, pastor? If God really loves you, you guys have no clue the battles I've faced walking up here this morning. Of just, and I'm not saying that in a derogatory fashion, and don't take it that way. What I'm saying is, walking through these doors this morning, this has become a very safe haven for me. But in the area of the mind, if I had not put on such the great salvation this morning, the whole way up here, literally, this has been going through my head. How can you preach to people when your life is such a failure? That's what I've been battling with this morning. Y'all are sitting here thinking, why would you even think that? <laughs> because we live in a fallen, broken world. In a fallen, broken time. Nobody is immune to that deception. And so the whole way up here, even standing at that seat this morning, it's been playing through my head. How can you even preach this morning? You're not worthy to do that. How can you even stand before a congregation this morning and preach on some of the things that you're going to talk about this morning which have directly affected your life this week? Your life is a failure of an example to your congregation is what I've been dealing with all morning long. And some of y'all are sitting here thinking, how in the world is he even thinking that? Exactly. <laughs> That's the problem. It's that great deception that everybody out there sees, well, what's he talking about? Because you're not deceived. He's not working on you in the area of that. He's working on me in the area of that. And so this morning, in the midst of all these things going on and the amazing worship that we had, that's why I said, who's ready to go to faith places? And we're going to step out and we're going to go to faith places today. Take us deeper than we've ever gone before. Let's go to faith places this morning that we've never experienced before. Because when you put on such great salvation, you begin to know that it's just the accuser 24 hours a day, seven days a week, throwing things at you. And if he can get Joel to step down just for a moment, if I can get him just to believe it just for a moment, that he's a failure for one Sunday, I got him for every Sunday. If I can get him to believe he's a failure just for five minutes this morning, I've got him for the rest of the service. And that's what he's doing all the time. This great salvation, the greatest deception that the world has ever faced is questioning the love of God. He did it to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I'll prove it to you even more. He did it to Jesus himself in Matthew chapter number four. Satan himself approached Jesus and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread, questioning that God is really the supply for Jesus' life. Jesus, if you are really the son of God and then God will withhold nothing from you, command these stones to, stones to turn into bread. And Jesus looked at him and said, you're not my supply. <laughs> You're not my supply. If God is really God, why would he have you tithe if he already has all the money in the world and the cattle on a thousand hills and the gold in them hills and everything else everybody always says? If he really has that, why does he want you to tithe? Because the devil's trying to get you to question God's love for you in the area of him being your supplier. This is why this year we purpose to tithe on purpose and with a purpose. He goes on in the same scenario. It says, if you are the son of God, Jesus, throw yourself down, for it is written. And listen, the devil did not misquote scripture. He got it word for word correct. 
He just misplaced it. He didn't misquote it. He misplaced it. And listen, the devil knows the Bible frontwards, backwards, inwards, outwards. He's been around a lot longer than a lot of us. So he didn't misquote it. He just misrepresented it how it was supposed to be used. He said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for his written. He will command his angels concerning you that on, that, that, and, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. He's questioning, does God really love you enough that if you jump off this cliff, he'll save you? See, the one thing the devil's trying to do is get you to kill yourself so he doesn't have to. He's trying to knock you off, trying to get you to knock yourself off so he doesn't have to. He said, if I can just get Jesus to jump off the cliff, I don't got to worry about him getting crucified. So he's trying to get you to do just enough to kill yourself so he doesn't have to anymore. He was questioning the the God's love in his area of physical salvation. And then he said to them, all these things I will give you, Jesus, if you fall down and worship me. And listen, the devil had it all to give. Because when Eve committed her life to Satan in the garden, she turned over all authority of the earth to him. Or Adam, I, I should say. Turned all authority of the earth over to him. So when he said, fall down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth, he had every right to say it. And Jesus said this. Jesus comes back and said this. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, the devil's not trying to get you to forsake God. He's just trying to get God not to be first in your life. Do you see how great this deception is? Oh, I love God. I know you love God, but is, is, is he first in your life? Do you love him first? Do you love him more than anything else? See, the devil's job is not trying to get you to discredit God or disown God. He's just trying to make God not be first. Because if he's not first, he's not anything, and he's not Lord of all. So that means he's not Lord at all. That means every area of your life is now accessible to whatever is first. So when God's first, everything is accessible to God. When anything else is first, everything's accessible to whatever's first. And if God's not first, ultimately the enemy is in some way, shape, or form. So the mind games that he plays, do you understand the greatest deception of the enemy is this? To simply get you to question God's love. God's love in your life. Let's talk about strongholds for just a minute. Strongholds in the Old Testament meant fortress. In the New Testament it means prisons. Strongholds and fortresses and prisons are meant for one thing, to not let anybody in, but also to not let anybody out. (laughs) Do you understand how powerful that statement is? Strongholds were for this, not to let anybody in, but to not let anybody out, because if we can't get in, we can't get them out, and if they can't get out, they can't let us in. That's why strongholds are so crazy uh, important in your life, to have godly strongholds in place, to let nothing of the enemy in, and to let nothing of, uh, of the enemy come in and take what God has and bring it out But negative strongholds are devastating in your life because when they're here, God can't get in because you've set up the stronghold and you can't get out. Strongholds are so pivotal in your life to have them in place for godly reasons but not in place if they're ungodly such as unforgiveness. Satan will use lies, insinuation, and fears to institutionalize you. He will use rational and logical thoughts to institutionalize you and he will use irrational, illogical, illogical thoughts to institutionalize you. I'll give you a perfect example. This morning, I just confessed what I was going through. Y'all are thinking that's irrational, Pastor, and that's illogical. Why are you even thinking that? Wasn't irrational and illogical to me. It's real to me. But y'all are thinking I'm crazy. But to me, it's very real. And so when you look at somebody who simply they, they just can't get out of a depression, you're looking at them like, you're crazy. Just walk out. They can't. They're in prison. When you're looking at somebody who is struggling in the area of a poverty mindset, and you're just like, well, start working harder. Just tithe. Just get out. They can't. They're in prison. This is where the Bible says the weapons we have of our warfare are mighty for the pulling down of their strongholds to let them out of prison, to let the captives go free, to those in darkness come out. 
This is why we got to walk this out. The devil will use irrational and illogical thinking to keep you in prison. He'll also use logical and rational thoughts to keep you in prison. Rationally, right now, honey, it's not rational for us to tithe. He's got you in prison because of your rationale and your rational thinking and your logical thinking. Logically, honey, right now, tithing is not the best thing to bring up. Right now, honey, logically speaking, uh, marriage counseling is not the best thing for us. Logically speaking, right now, honey, we can't really do this with our kids because we don't have time to read the Bible because rational and logical thinking are just as much a, a device to imprison you and institutionalize you just as irrational and illogical thinking is. And strongholds are built and developed out of both logical and illogical, rational and irrational thinking. And the scary part is this to people who are in prison. Many times they feel safer in prison than they do being set free. That is so scary. People feel safer being depressed because they know to get out of depression, they're going to have to walk through some things. So it's safer to stay in prison and keep everybody else out and not get set free. It feels safer to be in this point. And this is why we walk by faith, not by sight. We lead with the shield of faith going forward, not with the sight of how hard it's going to be walking out the process. We walk it out. We live it out. And if you are imprisoned this morning, I'm telling you, I know the road to get out is not going to be easy, but you're not going down this road alone. The road to get out is going to be hard, but you're not walking the road alone. And in fact, we'll carry you if need be, but we're going to get some people out of prison this morning. Amen? We're going to get some people set free this morning, and we're going to watch God do something amazing in their life this morning. The Bible says, fear not. Why does Jesus got to say, fear not? I mean, that seems like a pointless thing that Jesus would have to say. Jesus says it time and time again, fear not, because fear is a great institutionalizer. It says, I am the first and the last. I am the living, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I live now and forevermore. And I have taken the keys, get this, of death and Hades. That, that's so powerful. Jesus said, I got the keys to your prison that you built and stuck yourself in. I got the keys, Jesus said. So Jesus, with his great salvation, has unlocked them. But with us, the Bible says, the weapons of our warfare are mighty for the pulling them down. See, Jesus will let you out, but it's our job as the church to destroy them. Jesus will set you free, but it's our job as the church to make sure you never go back. Jesus does all the work. It's our job as the church to keep you in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Amen? We're going to wrap it up with this last one, oppressions. The Bible says in Acts 10, 38, Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and in power he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The Greek word oppressed means something that is dominating or manipulating with a power that is explosive. It's a dominating, manipulating, explosive power in somebody's life. Oppression, depression falls under the form of oppression. Okay, Oppression is the overall covenant blanket. Depression comes under the form of an oppression in your life. So depression is literally this, an explosive manipulating power that dominates your emotions. An explosive manipulating power that dominates your emotions. It makes you feel sad, and in your state of sadness, you start developing a stronghold that if I build enough blocks and don't let anybody see how sad I am, I'll build this big prison around me, and nobody can see in, and they won't know I'm sad. But you don't realize what you've done when you've built these walls that you've built yourself in, not let yourself out. It's a manipulating, dominating force that's explosive that kills the emotions of people. There's something out there called a spirit of infirmity. If you're a chronic sickness type person, infirmity is an explosive, manipulating power that dominates one's health or the physical body. An explosive, dominating power that dominates one's health or physical body. Spirit of infirmity. We're called to set people free. This is why the Bible says Jesus laid his hands on the sick and they recovered. 
I mean, he set him free. He went around healing all those who were oppressed, oppressed of the devil. Oppressed of the devil doesn't mean just, oh, I guess there was mentally something wrong. No, it doesn't mean that. It means whatever does not line up with the kingdom of heaven and is pressing you down and keeping you from being where God's called you to be is an oppression of the devil. And so in your life, this morning, some of you are dealing with strongholds, some of you are playing mind games, some of you are dealing with oppressions and depressions, but understand this, I love this part, but Isaiah 53 says this, surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows and oppressions. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before his shearers was silent, so he opened not his mouth. We all, like sheep, have gone astray and have turned each one of us to our own ways. But the Lord has laid upon Jesus Christ the iniquity of us all, and it is time for such a great salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that time. 